I'd encourage you to, uh, to have your, your Bible open in front of you, and there is a, there's a heading for you as we get going, crisp clarity, crisp clarity. And what I'm hoping this morning is that you're going to walk out with a very crisp clarity on what it's all about. And perhaps for some of you this morning, there might be that crisp clarity that you need to bow the knee before King Jesus. Here at uh, BBC, we have framed the Great Commission like this. It's about maturing disciples, making maturing disciples. That's sort of the catchphrase, or one of them that we've used. It's about maturing disciples, making maturing disciples. And as you look at that definition, there are a couple of things that should stand out for you. Number one, it tells you who we are. Who are we? We are maturing disciples. The definition also tells us what we should be doing, which is making maturing disciples. And number three, it tells us when we should be doing it, which is when? Always. It's a, it's a maturing, it's a, it's, a, it's a making. So it's something that we're always doing all of the time until you're dead or Jesus comes back first. But as you look at that definition, here's the question that it raises. How do we primarily make maturing disciples? How do we primarily make maturing disciples for Jesus? If you look at our passage, and you can go down to chapter 1, verse 36 and 37, you'll notice at this point in the gospel, Peter and his companions and the crowds are all very, very confused. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. You see, at this point in the gospel, Peter, the other disciples, the crowds, they don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand why he has come. Therefore, they don't understand the mission, and they certainly don't understand how to do the mission. And my question to you this morning, my question to me, my question to us is this. Do we have crisp clarity on how we make maturing disciples? Do you have a crisp clarity? Do we have it? Let me take you to for my first heading, and I'm going to call it the construct. The construct, if you've got your Bible and you look at the passage that was read, have a look at the top and the bottom. 1.14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee. What's the next word? Proclaiming, proclaiming the good news of God. That's 14. Go down to verse 39. So he traveled through Galilee, and what's the next word? preaching, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now, in theological terms, we would call this an inclusio. It means that the start of the passage and the bottom of the passage have the same theme, right? Top and bottom. And everything in between either explains, explores, elaborates on the top and the tail. Are you with me? And that's why this is a unit together. Now, as you look at that word proclaim in verse 14 and that word preaching in verse 39, although they can have different nuances in meaning, 
Perhaps the best way to understand that word is the word heralding. Jesus came heralding in 114. In the synagogue, he was heralding. In basic terms, to proclaim, to preach, to herald means a public, here's the crisp clarity, it is a public declaration of fantastic news. Heralding is the public announcement of gigantic, momentous, life-changing, earth-shattering news. So when you hear that word preaching, please do not think that preaching is only something that is done behind a pulpit like I'm doing this morning. Preaching is, like this, is one of the public proclamations. If you've got your Bible, look back to Mark chapter 1, verse 4. When John came preaching, he wasn't in the desert behind a pulpit, was he? So listen, here's the clarity that we need. The primary way that maturing disciples make maturing disciples is by the public proclamation of fantastic good news. That's the primary way. So it begs the question, doesn't it? What is that news? What is this phenomenal news? What is this gigantic life, shattering earth, changing news? And we really want to get it right, don't we? We really want to understand it so we can, compl- we, can, we, can, we can share it rightly. I mean, what exactly are we announcing? So from the construct, we go to the Christ, to the Christ. Got your Bible, take a look at it. In chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, Jesus emerges in victory in the temptations that the devil threw at him. You'll notice it says that John the Bapo was put into jail. We'll get to that in chapter 6. But Jesus makes this astonishing statement. Having come out of the desert in victory over the devil, he says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. That's the phenomenal news that Jesus announces. The kingdom of God has come near. Now to a Jewish mind, that statement would absolutely explode with meaning. And I want to try and give you a little taste of what a Jewish mind would hear. We've got to put two scriptures next to each other. They'll come up on the screen, and you're going to see it. The first one is Isaiah 52, 7, which says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Put alongside Isaiah 40 verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Now what Jesus is doing when he says the kingdom of God is near, he is drawing heavily on those two passages. And here's the the clarity that we need. Jesus is making the mind-boggling announcement that with his coming is the kingdom of God. 
What he's saying is in him, he's the one that brings salvation. He's the one that brings the forgiveness of sins. He's the one that stands between God and man. He's the reconciler. And in him, God has come to his people. And all God's people went, wow. In him, God has come. This Jesus from backward little Galilee, Nazareth, Galilee. The king of the kingdom bringing salvation. He is the Christ. And we've got to understand that even the most pious of Jews really had a hard time understanding this. And, and, and when we get this, we, we start to understand the stunnedness of what happened when Jesus went into the synagogue. So take a look at chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. They went into Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus goes into the synagogue, and he began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. And, and, and it says there that, that the people were amazed. I, I think it's a fairly lame translation. They were stunned. They were gobsmacked. Uh, they were blown away. Their Jewish sideburns started to curl. Their tassels started to tangle. They were astonished. Why? Because what Jesus was saying is that he was the Jewish Messiah. The one they longed for. The one they had prayed for. The one that had been promised in the Old Testament. Going back to Genesis 3, uh, Genesis 12 to Abraham. Put it this way. Jesus was saying, standing right here in front of you, I am the light to the Jewish nation. I am the light to the Gentiles. Now, let me show this to you in a slightly different angle, and you'll, you'll see it even a bit more clearly. If you went over to Luke chapter 4, listen to what it says. He went into Nazareth, and where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he goes into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stands up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And rolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see it? He says to those Jews, the one that you've seen grow up before your eyes like a wee boy, I am the Spirit baptizer. I'm the Spirit anointed Messiah. I am the Spirit anointed Son of God. I'm the one who has come to proclaim freedom for the captives, to give sight to the spiritually blind, to give, to give walking to those who are spiritually lame. I am declaring the year of the Lord's favor. I'm declaring the year of the Lord's salvation, which is the year of Jubilee. No wonder every eye was fastened on him. No wonder they were gobsmacked. No wonder they were stunned, amazed. Standing in front of them, the Messiah the Savior 
of the Jews, the saviour of the Gentiles, the saviour of the world. Now, in the passage, Mark gives us two confirmations. He gives us two evidences. He gives us two proofs, if you like, that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, it's one thing to say that you're the real deal about something. It's another to prove it. If you're going to go around making outrageous statements that you are the divine Son of God walking on earth, providing salvation and forgiveness of sins to everybody, well, you better prove it. You better back up with your words with some evidence. And there are two. Have a look at the first one. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Now it should not be lost on us that there was a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. It also should not be lost on us that people were more amazed at the power of Jesus than the presence of the demon in the synagogue. But here is what Mark is showing us. The confirmation that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the promised Messiah of a thousand years or more, the confirmation is that he is the only one able to cast out demons with complete authority. This is the demonstration that the one standing in front of them is none other than the serpent crusher promised in Genesis 3.15. Let me show it to you. Way back in the beginning, God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Here in Mark 1, this is the serpent crusher displaying his power over the devil. It is a mere foretaste of when Jesus would go to the cross and crush Satan's head finally, setting God's people free from his tyranny and his bondage, setting the captives free, giving eyes to the blind. But the second confirmation comes in verses 29 to 34. A second proof, a second evidence that God has invaded the world with his king is where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law and he heals all the sick that are coming to him. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. 
You look at this healing and Jesus sort of taking Peter's mother-in-law by the hand, sorting out this fever. It doesn't seem that such a big deal, does it? I mean, heck, you get a fever, what do you do? You just pop a Panadol and say, Bob's your uncle and off you go, right? But in a day, well, the, the Greek, first of all, indicates that it's a raging fever. The type of fever that can kill you. The type of fever that had no medication in a time before the advent of the medication that we have. But if you add verses 32 to 34, that Jesus healed every single person that came to him after sunset, and he continued to drive out demon after demon after demon, you get a very powerful picture. It should not be lost on us that the people who were sick only came after sunset. Did you notice that? And the reason why they only came after sunset was because the teachers of the law had said, you may not travel too far on the Sabbath. I think you could only go about a kilometer. You work more than, walk more than a kilometer on the Sabbath. That was working. If it's work, you're breaking the law. And so these religious leaders had all sorts of stupid rules and regulations that they made up, which were like bondage on people. We'll get to that in the next chapter. But people came from everywhere to see Jesus. And here's the picture. Whether Jesus spoke, or whether he touched them, or whether they touched him, every single disease was healed. Every single demon was cast out. Now here is the crisp clarity that we need. The sickness and the brokenness in this world is heartbreaking, isn't it? We experienced it again this week in living color. And in my heart, I stand before you. I wish that when Jesus came, and even after he went back to heaven, I wish that it meant that every single person would be healed of their physical sickness and suffering. I really wish it was. I really wish it was that every single person that would come to Jesus, they would be healed. But that it's not the purpose of these miracles. It's not the purpose of the casting out of the demons. Here's the clarity. These exorcisms, for want of a better word, this Jesus healing all the sickness of these people breaking down his door, let me give you a phrase, they are Christ kingdom demonstrations. You hear that? They are Christ Kingdom demonstrations, meaning these miracles and these exorcisms, they mean that the Christ has come, that Jesus is the king, that in Jesus the kingdom has come. They show that he is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. They show that he is the Spirit-anointed Messiah. They show that he is the divine Son of God. They show that he is the one who conquers Satan. And the one who would go to the cross and he will crush Satan's head once and for all to bring salvation to all who believe. And that's exactly what Jesus said, isn't it? I'm not reading something into the text that is not there because look, look what Jesus said. Peter companions the crowds. Oh, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. Why were they looking for Jesus? They wanted healing. They wanted more of the same. Heal. 
Jesus said, no, 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 no. Let's go somewhere else. Let's go to nearby villages so I can what? Heal there also. Preach. That is why I've come. So let me state it like this to you. Here's what Je- If we put the words into Jesus' mouth, here's how it would go. Something like this. Jesus says to his disciples, I haven't come that everyone on earth can be healed now. I have come that those who believe in me will be healed from the sickness of sin and healed body and soul in eternity one day. That is why I came. Now let me say to you, brothers and sisters, we must not get confused about this. Because if we get this wrong, what we're going to do as we proclaim the gospel is we just want people to come and get healed. That's why they will come. Well, Jesus will fix everything. Jesus will sort out all my felt needs. But here's another problem. If the people come for that, they're going to be very disappointed. You know why? I'm going to make a bold statement. Jesus in heaven does not heal on earth like he did when he was on earth. Does that make sense? Jesus does not heal in the same way or the same frequency from heaven as he did on earth. Why? Because the point of the miracles and the casting out of demons was the evidence, the confirmation that he is the Christ. Is that clear? That that does not mean we're into cessationism. It doesn't mean that we're saying there's no miracles today. But the point of Mark is that the miracles and the exorcisms are confirmations that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who will save you, rescue you from all your sin, give you forgiveness of sins, and give you eternal life in heaven where you will be healed, body, soul, and mind, and there will be no death and no suffering and no tears and no agony, no pain, no hurt, no difficulty. That's one day. It's not now. Is that clear? I hope so. Which takes us then finally to the core. The core. If we understand the construct, the Christ, the confirmations, take a look at verse 15 to 20. Jesus says the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When they'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So here's the good news. The Christ of the kingdom has come. He'll bring salvation by crushing Satan's head at the cross. He will rise from the dead in victory over sin, death, hell, Satan. And he demonstrates that he is the Savior of all 
by casting out demons, healing the sick. And that calls for a response. Did you see the call? Repent. 115. Believe. 115. Follow. 117 verse 20. Repent simply means to turn around. Repent is connected to following. It means to turn around from following the wrong king. Whether that king is yourself, whether that king is the Caesar, whether that king is some sort of other fallen human being, whether that king is some other little, little god, little g, repent means to, to turn around, to acknowledge your sin, acknowledge that you have broken God's laws, and, and turn towards Christ. Turn to the one who brings forgiveness and salvation. Believe. It simply means to trust in the one and only Christ who can save you from sin and death. Trust in Him alone. It's not Jesus plus something. It's not Jesus minus something. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's His finished work on the cross and Him rising in victorious day. Follow. It means you follow Him as Lord. You follow now. You follow him now and into all eternity. You follow him now in your life. You follow him through death and you follow him into eternity. It's not that like Jesus is Savior or Lord. He is Savior and Lord. You can't be saved by Jesus and not have him as Lord. And did you notice, repent, believe, follow. Do you notice? They're not options. They're not like mild suggestions. They're actually commands in the Greek. Repent. Believe. Follow me. But notice, they're not coming from a, from a, from a tyrant. They're not coming from some sort of vindictive despot. They're not coming from some crazy megalomaniac who wants to live the old glory days. It's come from a king who's laid down his life for you. Now listen, therefore to repent, believe, and follow this king is the very best thing you could ever do. The very best thing you could ever do. Do you remember last week I showed you... Do you remember him? I, that's sort of a younger version of King Charles, isn't it? Looks a bit older these days. But anyway, get sidetracked. On the 6th of May, 2023, Charles will be crowned or coronated as King of England, King of the United Kingdom, King of the Commonwealth, King of Australia, and so on and so on. That king isn't going to die for you. And even if that king went to the battlefield to die for you, it would be a useless wait of time because he could not save you from your real enemies, which is sin, death, hell, and the devil himself. You see, quite frankly, putting it bluntly, 
to follow any human king, any mere human prime minister, human president, human whatever, is the most stupid thing you can do because they, well, Charles cannot save you from the wrath of God and he cannot, he cannot give you eternal life in glory. Why would you want to follow any other king? Repenting before this king, believing in this king, following this king is the wisest thing you will ever do. And did you notice, it's not going to come up on the screen, but did you notice if you've got your Bible in verse 18 and verse 20, did, did, you, did you notice what Peter, Andrew, James, and John did when they were called? Do you know what they did? What does it say? They just what? They, they just, thank you, Deborah. They just dropped everything. They left the nets, they left the boats, they left, the, they left Papa in the boats, and off they went, right? Without delay, they left. What's Mark telling us? See, when you see who Jesus is, when you see what he came to do, when you have the confirmations that he is, and when you said he is, and he did what he said he did, when you've got all of that, there comes this immediate call to repent, to believe, and to follow. It's immediate. It's now. It's not tomorrow. It's now. It's not next week. It's not after you get married. Sarah. Uh, it, 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 there's nothing that becomes more important than this. Everything is secret. It's now. Uh, there's, 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 there's no waiting. There's no turning back. There's no looking back. There's no, well, um, uh, uh, but. In other words, with Jesus, it's all or nothing. You've heard of RBT, haven't you? You ever watch RBT? No? No, you don't. No wonder so many of you get arrested for drinking and driving. No kidding. Uh, it's not RBT, it's what? R-B-F. <laughs> Repent. Believe. Follow. No, no, let me repent. Repent now. Believe now. Follow now. Now. Today. Now. Today. Let's start, finish where we started. Remember Peter, hey? Peter was pretty confused at the beginning, wasn't he? You remember that? Actually, oh, I'll get to that. Peter was pretty confused in Mark 137. Remember what he said? Everybody's what? We're looking for you. Please, come and do more miracles. Come and... But you see, Peter was a maturing disciple, wasn't he? And he matured. And we go a little bit forward and he, we go to Pentecost and the Spirit came down at Pentecost and oh, as the lights went on and the eyes were open and the heart was opened, we get this. Peter stands up before 3,000 Jews at least, probably more, three to 5,000 Jews. And here's the good news that he proclaims. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Wow. 
When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters of BBC, brothers and sisters here that are visiting with us, the crisp, clear mission of the church is the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that he is the only one who brings salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and he has confirmed it over and over through his healing miracles and his casting out of the demons. But the ultimate demonstration would take place when at the cross he gave up his spirit to the Father and that stone was rolled away. Brothers and sisters, if the public proclamation of the phenomenal news in Jesus is not our mission, then we are being unfaithful. If it's not maturing disciples, making maturing disciples through the proclamation of the gospel, we've missed it. We're confused. And I don't know about you, but when you, when you stand before your Lord one day, what words do you want to hear? Well done, my good and faithful, faithful servant. Two things as I close. We really don't have a problem announcing earthly good news. Woohoo! Sarah and Caleb getting married. Yeah! Okay, cool. I'm glad you're excited. Um, we don't have a problem saying baby on the way. Angela. We don't have a problem saying, I've got a new job. I bought a new house. I bought a new car. Aboard a new boat? No, maybe not that one. We don't have a problem saying, oh, I can't wait to see my family that I haven't seen for, 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 for years. We haven't got problems announcing good news. Why on earth would there be a problem saying the king has come? The king has come. And he is the only one. He is the only one who can save you from your sin. Is it clear, brothers and sisters? So let me finish with this. Is there someone here today that you need to hear the good news again? God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. I would pray that you'd be sitting here with your heart cut 
He'd be saying, what should I do? What should I do? R-B-F. Repent. Believe. And follow. Is that crisply clear for you? James chapter 1 says this, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Music team. <laughs> 